for people coming downtown for shorter events to find available street parking. City Council is expected to vote on the item today. If they approve it, Park Houston says the extension likely won't happen until September, and they'll make sure to give the public ample time and information about the changes. Support this local newscast and this station now by going to kpft.org and becoming a member. Thanks for tuning in. For KPFT News, I'm Elise Bench. Looking out a dirty old window Down below the cars in the city go rushing by I sit here alone and I wonder why Friday night and everyone's home I can feel the heat but it's soothing heading down I search for Looking out a dirty old window Down below the cars in the city go rushing by America here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio, a discussion on our children, public policy, and how we do as a city community. Oh, how is we? How do we, as a city and community, do when it comes to taking care of all of our children? Growing up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the Voice of Texas Children, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. Each week, we aim to fill these same sixty minutes with lively discussion on children of Texas with experts on the quality of life for our children. To now introduce ourselves, I am Claire Duche, and I am here with. Gretchen Himsel, nice to see you, Claire. Hello, this is exciting. We have a new co-host in the house. We are replacing Dr. Bob. No, we are not. He is enjoying the beautiful city of El Paso this week. But we're going to do some regular segments. Don't you worry, like data of the day. Our teaser number is one out of four. Do you have a guess of what that might be? You mean besides 25%? Oh, day of the day is not a math quiz? No, well, it should just be a fraction because I tank it every time. I think it's one out of four. Oh, are we switching mics? Do we not even? One out of four children. Right, I like the way you're headed. I know. See, it's always low. Are still sad that school's out. I'm going to use my exact same comment of last week because I'm out of ideas. Or one out of four children have rock and roll as their favorite music category. <laughs> uh, one out of four kids uh, go, have a library card. I really hope that's the case. Do your kids do summer reading, or did they? We did, yeah. We would go to the library every week, come home with piles of books. Um, it was really it was really fun. Like They would just be like plowing through like the series. One of my daughters read the book about the cats that had their own culture. Oh, I've never heard of this Warriors. one. It was like the Warrior series. That is so exciting. I had Magic Treehouse. Oh, also a strong But book. I would be the worst because I would take really long to read, but I like the idea of getting books. I would have a huge stack on my way out, and all the other kids hated me because I hoarded the books and then read maybe two of them. But they, they don't check if you fill in your, your reading card. Like switching, um, so I wasn't actually clocked. I didn't read all the books, but I was I was not great at summer reading, but I tried. We have a special guest too for date of the day, Nadia Villani, the director of community philanthropy with the Greater Houston Community Foundation, and of course we have very interesting, very awesome guests that no other radio station has right now, and that's John McCarty, the district manager of Mattress Firm. Talk about the importance of sleep. Dr. Jamie Freeney is back to emphasize the importance of mental and behavioral health. Susanna Young, our very own Texas A-plus children at risk literacy coach. Flip that, but that's okay. And then Rajnagar, the executive director of DIA, I believe. Yes. Talking about empowering South Asian women. So we hope you're going to be with us throughout the show as we discuss these issues and how they affect children of Houston and children of Texas. So as we move on, we have our first segment in Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down. Dime cómo hacemos 
Si tú me deseas, yo a ti también Hacer a todo te quiero comer ¿De qué vas a hacer? Así que ponme un dembow que se no respeta Tengo para ti la combi completa Que no duró mucho soltera Aprovechame So our thumbs up, thumbs down topic today is clear backpacks, which is very interesting, or mesh backpacks. I know that there's a favorite, although I don't understand why you would choose mesh, um, because they rip very easily. I saw a lot of textbooks flying out of bags last year. Um, but what are some pros, Gretchen, of clear backpacks? Well, obviously, they are for safety. That's the number that we're seeing them in uh, arenas football games. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. All of that. So it's it's starting to be pretty standard among massive, you know, groups of humanity together is that we have bag checks and clear bags. So the clear bags gets you to be able to have bags. Um, you know, the school that I was a part of switched to clear bags this year. Mm-hmm. It was not popular among the kids, but the teachers and administrators said that it was much safer and a lot fewer fights because kids mm. weren't bringing things to sell at the school or contraband or things they shouldn't have. And then there was no one stealing those things that they shouldn't be having. So everyone had the same stuff, pencils, laptop, notebook, and stuff like that. So it reduced the conflict a lot. And then it does um, improve safety um, to some degree. So those are the, those are the pros. Um, now I feel silly. I was thinking just as a school and I could, I'm going to go on about cons, but thinking of stadium, it is a lot easier, especially with checks. Funny story. I am never bring a purse or a bag anywhere because I move around a lot. So I will lose it in seconds. But for one concert, I bought a clear bag and I started opening it for them to check. And he said, this is clear. <laughs> so it's a funny story that made me think of, but it is, it made the bag check a lot faster. And also, like you said, the safety aspect, it's even, even if it's, it's not a false sense, it's a sense of security that it puts um, on major events. Um, some cons now. Thinking of students, their lack of individ- individuality. Um, because they're becoming more popular, I would say it was the cost, but now I think there's cheaper options for clear and mesh backpacks. Lack of privacy for medicine, for women, a lot of sanitary products. They did allow it in my school. I don't know if there was a size cap, but bags within the bag. Mm-hmm. So zipper pouches, um, sometimes they would be checked depending on the situation, but to keep the sanitary or private products. Um, and then clear backpacks don't necessarily, again, they're a sense of security, but it doesn't necessarily mean that things can't happen. So it can't be your only That's right. like, sense That's of right. everything's okay because we can see exactly what's in that bag. Do we want to discuss the um, uh, the environmental problems with plastic? And, uh, yes. <laughs> and the fact that it doesn't degrade and then it breaks really easily. So most kids with the normal level of books and laptops would probably go through two to three yeah, because they don't have those strong supports. Also, if we really want to get into it, I have scoliosis, and they have not made a lot with the strong padding. I am Mine has like a whole back surface. It's probably a back brace on my backpack because I would just have pounds of backpacks with no lockers, and they do not hold textbooks. Like you said, the brakes that yeah absolutely i mean and then like a lot of kids have the roller bag option um because as growing children (laughs) those bags are heavy i weighed them once it was 40 pounds the roller or just a normal the the normal backpack because of course at least two books of the warrior series were in there as well but i'm not (laughs) going to say no to that but then you know there's small kids who are hauling 40 pounds a day and the up and down like their shoulder problems are a serious thing with kids i know i was always a a one shoulder backpacker looking back looks so silly because it was double the size of me, so I had a half hunchback because of this one. I should have just been a baller with the rolling backpacks. There were three girls in my school that did, and they knew what they were talking about. I'm sure they'll never have back issues. Um, but I uh, I don't know. Are you thumbs up or thumbs down clear backpacks? All the I, I'm thumbs up because of safety, but I'm a huge double thumbs down the fact that we have to have them for safety. I agree. I agree. I I'm thumbs down right now for that. And also I want to see them advance. I don't want them to get bulletproof because that also is that's, where that's not the world we're living in, I hope, in the next year. But I want more comfort if we're going to have it for safety. Um, but I'm also pro clear bag policy for stadiums and big, large gatherings for sure. 
So yeah, if you want to let us know as the show goes on, you can call in to 713-526-5738 and press 2 to join us and give your opinion, or you could press 1 to donate and keep us on the air. But we have our first guest coming up. Give me a second. We have our very first guest of this show, John McCarty, with us. John, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? We are excited. You are the sleep expert, we've heard. So we are eager to hear what you have to say for (laughs) us today. But John, can you go ahead and give us just an overview, um, obviously a sleep expert with Mattress Firm, district manager, to talk about the overall topic of the importance of sleep, but also just what you do past, I think, the audience might think mattress firm and not understand that those managers and workers really understand deeper than just giving a mattress. So giving that scope for us. Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks for having me on today. Um, my name is John McCarty. I'm a district manager here in the Houston market with mattress firm and uh, mattress firm is actually the largest mattress retailer in the nation. So a uh, majority of consumers that are in the market eventually probably pass through one. If you're in Houston, you probably see them on every corner. Um, so we have an extremely large footprint in the market. Um, but beyond that, we actually do have quite a bit of learning and development that goes into the Sleep Expert platform from educating about the science of sleep, how it affects the body, um, what that adversely can do for anyone, um, children and adults. And, in fact, we actually use... Uh, science and tools in the store when a customer comes in to help um, ask them some questions about the way they sleep, maybe some things that are disrupting sleep, and then uh, some of those tools and technology helps us to guide them through the process to get the right selection based off what their needs are. So most of our sleep experts go through at least a couple hundred hours a year of ongoing continuous education and topics that surround sleep and different mattress types. There's so many options in the market, and it can get a little little cumbersome, you know, just looking online for which mattress is right for you. Some people have extreme situations or pain, or some people get really hot, or they have different needs, and so certain mattresses can be better than others for specific situations like that. So, <clears throat> John, if I'm p- picking out mattresses for my kids, what are some things I should look at and to help them get to sleep? I mean, obviously... Stuffed animals, special blankets are in, uh, uh, iPads and cell phones are out. But what about the mattress? What should I be looking for as a, as a parent? Yeah, that's, that's a popular question. And we get people come in and would always say, I mean, I'm a parent. And I think sometimes as parents, um, just from a budget perspective, sometimes they come in leading with a budget interest in mind first. And they kind of just get the least expensive option they can get. And what happens is. Um, it's kind of unconsciously, as a parent, sometimes you compromise the quality of sleep because you got something that maybe not a bed they can grow with. So there's a couple of different factors. Um, when it comes to children, their sleep quality, I would say, is just as important, um, if not more, than an adult because their body is still growing. There's so much uh, biologically happening with brain development, um, cell restoration, when everybody is sleeping, so because they're still developing, and most children typically sleep in multiple positions, uh, very rarely do they stay in one spot. So sometimes they're on their side, they're on their back, they're on their stomach. So you want something to kind of conform to their body. Um, you have pretty much three options when you go with choosing a the right mattress. Uh, typically for a child, you go, you can go with something that has what we consider something more traditional, like imagine something in a hotel. It's got a traditional coil for support, and it has some layers of foam that'll make it either firmer or softer or or medium. And then you have the all-foam kind of experience. You'll see a lot of that advertisement online, like the bed in the box. And then you now have what's called a hybrid. And the hybrid puts both of those technologies in one, so it's like a memory foam surface, but it'll still have a coil. What I always recommend for parents is kind of just 
depends on your child's build, uh, what their sleep style is. So to go with something that can be dense enough so it has strong enough material to where it's not just comfortable now, but it's something that they can grow with. So as they gain weight, for example, and they're a different size, four or five years from now, it's equally as comfortable. Um, typically something that can conform to their body really well so that it takes some you know, pressure off of their shoulders, their hips, or is preventing those things from building up and then building some, some poor sleep habits. Um, support's a big thing. You know, sometimes you have to kind of gauge, you know, you may have a child that's larger build than a normal child their age. They may be tall. They may have more weight. So you want to have something that's, that's supportive. So there's a number of different options, either in the traditional or the all-foam or the hybrid that's right. I would definitely recommend taking them in the store with you so they can lay on it and they can experience it, have them lay down in their normal position that they're in so you can kind of get an idea of what that's like. Um, so it's, it's a, every kind of category has something I think that's a good feel for them, that, that it's a good fit based off what their needs are. Um, but usually probably end up with more of a comfort conversation and what's going to conform to their body and support them to reduce pain buildup and, and issues down the line. Chad, I feel like this is a great segue. You're mentioning a lot physically, which is very imperative. My mom was definitely a, what's the cheapest option and also was hand-me-down for my brothers, which is fine, and I love her so much. But thinking of when I have my own kid, because I learned so much about child development on this radio show, what else does a good night's sleep really mean? What is this investment doing for your kid in the long run? Um, making sure that they have quality sleep? Absolutely. So that's a great question. That's some of those more sleep science-related topics. Um, there's a lot of brain development, cell restoration. Uh, when all of us sleeping are sleeping, that's your body's time to restore. So for a child, because they're still learning, they're still developing cognitive thinking, they're still learning how um, to process information, so them getting quality sleep plays a significant impact on their ability to retain information, to be alert throughout the day, to, to be active, um, to be cognizant in their learning style. When they're, so it plays a significant role. They're not getting enough sleep. And then that kind of becomes a pattern and they're going to sleep really late or just not getting quality restoration. It'll play some significant effects, especially on like their ability to learn, retain information, and just be healthy so that their cells are restoring enough and they can be, uh, they can recover the right way. And then as they get older and maybe they start playing sports or they have a more active lifestyle, uh, teaches them the importance to properly restore the body so they can be ready for their day properly. Yeah, very, very pertinent, important information. John, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to continuing working with you on advocating for proper sleep in our youth. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Quite interesting, was it not? It was. You know what he said about uh, how kids change positions as they yeah. sleep? Anyone who's shared a bed with a small human will <laughs> completely attest. It will kick you in the back until you are the most miserable you've ever been in your life when you wake up. That's right. And then they always do the starfish. So like somehow yeah. there's like a giant king-sized bed and every child is near the edge. Yeah, that is that is definitely me as a kid. I would beg my parents to sleep in the bed when I was growing up. And they're like, no, please pick an area adjacent to us. We need a good night's rest. <laughs> Just fine. But moving on and stay, staying on the conversation of youth, we have Dr. Freeney back with us. Dr. Freeney, how are you? 
Wonderful. How are you all? We are great. We're learning a lot. I don't know if you heard that conversation about proper sleep, but it was very enlightening. Yes. Yeah. So we are excited to have you back. I know we touched last week on a few different topics, emphasizing the importance of mental health, not just in this month, um, but beyond. And so today we're going to talk a lot about youth and youth-centered conversations. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Can you... I don't even know how to jump in. There's so much to unpack. Can I, I can, yeah, I can ahead, ask you a question. Ahead. So on the ride over, um, we were talking about kids, and one of my colleagues asked, because I'm a mom of two, she said, what are the hardest ages? And for girls, it was, um, I would say, mm. fourth grade and seventh grade, um, because they're going through so much, and I wanted to talk them through it because I knew they were going through so much, but I didn't know how. So yeah, how can absolutely. you start a conversation with kids when you kind of know it needs to be serious or there could be something serious going on? Um, do you go right in for it? Do you like talk around the edges and hope they open up? Doctor, how should we how should we how should we start those conversations? That is a great question. And oftentimes we miss the natural opportunity to bring up conversations like that mm-hmm. um, because we are just not in tune to what the child is saying and picking up on. So oftentimes children will talk around um, mental or emotional wellness, but they may say something in relationship to what they see among their friends happening or somebody did something to them or they saw something, somebody do something else. Um, And those types of conversations, like, so what do you think about how Charlie treated Maria or how do you feel when that teacher said that to you? So going into um, or allowing deeper thought around that and then giving them time to figure out how to express, you know, what they're, what they're feeling or what their thoughts are, I think it's a great way to start because um, they may not be really in tune to the language we're used to using. And so we have to learn to identify and pick up on what they're using and then connect the dots to something that is factual or something that we really want them to know. So like if we're going to talk about, you know, anxiety and what that means, sure, we can, you know, open the conversation and say, hey, have you heard of the word anxiety? Or when you feel nervous, have you, you know, noticed that maybe your counselor or some of the other friends in your friend circle may say the anxiety? Or you might hear, oh, somebody's getting on my nerves. Or you might hear, I don't want to go to school today. I don't want to encounter X, Y, Z. And those are, again, natural opportunities to say, oh, are you feeling nervous about the test? Um, Well, a lot of people get nervous. This is what can happen. You know, your body, you feel it in your body, your heart rate goes up, all those things. And so you can ask the child, what, how do you feel? What is it, what does it look like when you're, you know, with your friends and you feel like you're being left out? You know, what does that feel like? How do you you know, how do you start to identify that? And those types of conversations can then lead children to understand that I'm not a bad person. These are things that are are happening to me because of how, you know, my environment, because of how my brain is developing. And so it's okay that, you know, I make mistakes um, and I show emotion, but how adults and how we talk about those emotions and how we and how we respond to them in those times, they're picking up on those kinds of lessons. So there's two, it's kind of multifaceted. One, you can go right into the conversation, mm-hmm. but two, it's just to pick up on those opportunities during natural conversations and kind of, you know, dig deeper into what they're feeling or, or whatever, and then even engaging them. And, you know, have you noticed some other kids do this? Or have you noticed that teachers or counselors maybe are working with some students, you know, over something that, um, like grieving. And then you can talk about what that actually means. Oh, well, such and such is going to see the counselor because her grandfather died. Okay, well, then going into understanding or explaining why that's important, why that additional support is, is, is necessary. Right. And basically what this is, is laying the groundwork or foundation and you're giving them almost a toolbox of how they can properly express themselves. And if they've already been in that and feel 
in that space from just those simple interactions than when you do have to have more serious conversations or you feel like it needs to be open. It's more natural. Yeah, yeah. yeah addressing feelings in general. How can... Because I know parents, you have a more intimate relationship with your child, but how can educators navigate these conversations conversations with their students? Yeah, so I think it's kind of the same way, listening to the topics when they naturally come up, or if students are talking about something they saw in the news, or something that they saw on social media, um, asking questions that help them transition from thinking about the victim or the person that's doing it, like talking about them to mm-hmm. talking about how it's making them feel or how do they think that other person feels? You know, how do you think the bully feels? How do you think the person being bullied, you know, feels? And usually they can come up with those, you know, emotions and things like that. And so once they're able to articulate that, then we move into, okay, well, what do we do when we're feeling anxious? Or what, yeah. what can you do when you're, you know, um, when you have butterflies in your belly and you're about to take a test? Or what can you do when you, you know, you're, you're, you're going to ask somebody to, I don't know, go to the movies or whatever, and they reject you? What can you do in those moments so that you don't, um, you know, just, just take it as complete rejection, but you take it in stride. It's teaching these moments, it's using these moments to exemplify, you know, healthy coping mechanisms, healthy, healthy behaviors. Also exemplifying how to support a peer. You know, your classmate is having issues because they, you know, being bullied or maybe they didn't well on a, on a test. You know, how do you be there to support your your friend in the fourth grade, you know, or in the sixth grade? So these are all great opportunities to um, interject some of the mental health language into the conversation to help them become more comfortable and more aware of what these words mean and how they can articulate their own experience. Well, I think you're exactly right that this is a skill, like having emotional intelligence is a skill, just like cooking or, you know, riding a bike or playing, you know, baseball, you have to start little and work up and like have the like the words for what's going on. I think empathy is a great um, way to start because kids, especially when they're little, love telling stories, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like this happened and then this happened and then, you know, so-and-so is crying. You're like, really? Why do you think that happened? So I think that's a great way yes. to like start having those conversations. And like you said, naming things. So then when they see those things happening to themselves, or maybe that same friend that made the first friend cry is like now doing this to you. You're like, Oh, remember when this happened to so-and-so and how did they handle it? So I think that's a great way. And it also makes it easier for parents and teachers and like adult friends of kids to know how to have these conversations. Yeah, and even toddlers, if you notice, toddlers um, will play with, you know, toys or dolls or whatever. But even the toys or dolls have, they have emotions because they're seeing what they, they're mimicking what they see on these superhero, uh, superhero movies or, you know, like Disney movies and things like that. So they may have their toys or Barbies or Superman and Batman. They may be in an altercation and they're saying, Oh, you know, they're, they're actually playing it out and they're playing out anger or they're playing out disappointment or revenge. And so just take those opportunities to give them words and to give it meaning. Um, Because, you know, young people are so intuitive. They're so smart. And I don't know that we give them enough credit. Um, or pay enough attention because they do communicate with us. We just look for adult communication, not that child-like communication. That's right. The kids aren't going to be texting us, so we should put down our phones and really, <laughs> and really listening to what they're saying by not saying it. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Freeney. We are short on time today, but we always love having you on, and we'll definitely invite you back to continue this conversation. Thank you. Y'all have a wonderful day as well. You too.
dedicated to the one I love. We are moved on to one of my favorite segments, Data of the Day, with Nadia Valani. Nadia, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well, thanks. We are ex- how are you? We are good. We are excited to hear about what one out of four means. I debatably still had the worst guess, and then Gretchen had the most data answer ever and just said 25%. So she's not incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the full answer you're going to give us today. Love it. Uh, Yeah, one out of four households in the Houston region are unbanked or underbanked. Is this financially related? Is that the are those the banks that you're talking about? Exactly. Yes. Um, So that means that they don't have a bank account with a traditional bank or credit union, or they do, but they also use um, those alternative financial services like check cashing services, paid check advances, auto title loans, things like that. And why is this significant? If, is it, does this mean they're using cash instead? Does it mean uh, that they're using like just electronic transfers? Why, why is this an, a significant number? Yeah, it means they are using cash. They're not developing credit. But most importantly, they are really um, – making themselves available to uh, predatory lending in the form of high interest rates. And they will, of course, struggle with repayments because interest rates can go as high as 640% when we use these services like paid check loans and check cashing. Wait, what? (laughs) 640%. So I need uh, groceries before the check comes. So then how does that work? I go and ask for a loan and they say when your check comes, you can pay us all of it? Is that pretty much? They will um, charge interest at a very high rate for a short amount of time. Okay. And if you look at that over a full year, although the loan should not require a full year to pay back, but it's the equivalent of 640% APR. Got it. Got it. And so then yeah. would folks be using this frequently? Like, is this a almost every month or every other month to bridge that gap kind of practice? That's what we've seen is that um, people will get engaged in this cycle. And so the, in order to do the paycheck cashing, um, paycheck cashing, you must have a bank account. So the paycheck casher will have access to your bank account. And if you don't make it your repayment, they can take it out from your bank um, when they can also overdraw your funds. So now you've got funds with a bank and you have to charge extra fees with a paycheck cashing loan. And then most people do repay these loans, but it does take a couple of cycles which increases additional interest, more fees, higher payments. So if you're in this cycle and then you get the overdraft fees, that puts your gap even bigger for the next time. So it's really they're insuring perpetual customers. Yes, it becomes a vicious cycle. What are some of the barriers to people who are trying to get actual banking services instead of using Uh, the check cashing services? Yeah, some people uh, don't qualify. Some banks require a minimum balance, which can be really hard for a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck and and really um, their balance is very close to zero before the next paycheck comes. Most people who use these services are just using it to make the ends meet, to pay for food, to pay for bills. Um, And the average amount is really low relatively. It's only about a $500 but that ends up costing them thousands. Interesting. I am a researcher to my core, so I actually looked that up because I had that question. And nationally, the most cited reason was the not having enough money to meet minimum balance. But the second Mm -hmm. cited reason was that they don't trust banks, Mm. which I don't know would be a common theme in Houston or not, but apparently nationally, that's 13% of people use this. And our rates in Houston are twice as high as the average American rate. Really? Why is that? Hard to say. I think um, people in our community are definitely struggling. About 40% of people who are working are having trouble making ends meet. Um, And perhaps a larger diversity, we do see higher rates of unbanked and underbanked among people of color. The rates for Latinos in Houston are 20 times as high as for white households. 
22-0? Correct. You were blowing my mind with numbers today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Nadia. And we hope one day to have you back, not just for Date of the Day, but for a longer conversation as you always provide such insight. <laughs> now I okay. feel like I know another system that's broken. <laughs> I need to fix that to the list. <laughs> thank you, Nadia. Thanks, Nadia. Thank you so much. at us. I feel like both of our voices are in the same pitch. I was read an audio book. That was the vibe I was going for. Perfect. We have our next guest in-house, not to be super excited, but we're super excited. Susanna Young, who's a literacy coach with Children at Risk is Children at Risk is How do you? Risk? Risks. Risks. Oh, and Texas A-plus challenge. Sorry, I now need a literacy coach to read that out loud. Um, She's going to talk to us about star scores, what they look like right now, and just the impact on schools. Is she on inside? I am. I I heard a little laugh in the corner of my ear, and Gretchen wasn't laughing, and that kind of freaked me out for a second. Like, who is that coming from? How are you, Susanna, from inside the studio? I am super excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So tell us a little bit. School years, school years are ending. They're wrapping up. What is the current outlook for star scores and just end of the year projections? So this year is a very rare exception year. We are actually um, in the zone of uncertainty. So in grades uh, third through eighth, they actually have... Um, taken the students raw scores which is basically like how many points you got so if you got 52 this is how many points out of 52 you earned and it's up to the state to determine how many points is passing or failing so they've given us a scale of like these points are most likely to pass and then there's a giant chunk in the middle that they call the zone of uncertainty Um, and then there's most likely failed so we will not actually have an accurate picture of star scores until august because the committee that will meet for the cut scores meets in june so this is a very rare year in which um there's a lot of a lot of students are falling into this zone of uncertainty so we have no idea if they're going to pass or fail. I feel like we should add this to the ever-growing list of systems that are broken. <laughs> Is so this normal for it to be in August? We're going we're to no. test our kids, not t- tell anyone what the, the right or wrong side is. Keep that until the end of the summer. Mm-hmm. When you're placing kids in new curriculum. Yes, and it's made it really difficult. <laughs> I feel like someone should be listening to this. TEA, are they are they are, are they tuning in? <laughs> Susanna, do you know you might not know the answer to this, but I'm gonna assume you're an orifice of answers. Does this prevent summer star testing? So um, for this year, essentially, like there, there's not, um, you don't have to pass star to be moved to the next grade. Um, but they are, they did send out those guidelines of most likely passed, most likely failed, zone of uncertainty, so that schools could plan accordingly for summer school. So, I mean, you may end up sending kids to summer school that actually didn't need to go in the first place, but we won't know that until August. Is zone of uncertainty, is that catching the approaches or failed and then meets would be expected to pass? We don't know. <laughs> I hate to tell see, you that. See above state my autobiography is also zone of uncertainty right now. There is a lot of uncertainty. It just says um, likely to pass. So I'm guessing that those are definitely meets and masters. I'm guessing approaches live somewhere in that zone. But that's because there have been so many changes to the star test that I just don't think people in general, especially parents, are aware of. I think we're. I think no parents are aware of this. No, <laughs> this is no. rid- this is ridiculously ambigu- ambiguous. So the cut score is what we call it, like the line, the line of demarcation. Let's say, uh, what goes into that decision? Because if you move it down and more kids don't pass, they'll probably need more help with reading, which is which is great. But if you move it way high up and more kids do pass, that makes us look good. But maybe the kids aren't reading at a, such a great level that we need them to be. 
Correct. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with how the majority of students as a whole performed on this test, because obviously they don't want it to look like the entire state has failed. Um, they did release the Algebra 1 cut scores today, um, unofficially, which I think is a student need 21 out of 52 to pass. So, But that might change every year? It does change every year. So if we get dumber collectively as a state? There would be no way to know. Thank you. Yes. Okay. That's reassuring. <laughs> very, very positive outlook here. It's also just the star Texas test. Right. So right. we can find what intelligent is. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I feel like that's a we're, – we're racking up a list of things to talk about in future episodes. One is Disney, movie, Disney movies, <laughs> and the second one is, like, the efficacy and, and importance of the star test. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. So taking star away, but it's always going to be there. How have you seen schools bounce back? I hate saying it because it's, I feel like um, – a broken record talking about the pandemic, but I know there was a lot of learning loss. Do you still see that loss as a huge prevalent gap? Do you think schools are closing it fairly well and next year should start as a stronger year? How have you seen the learning loss? So um, absolutely, we have seen huge gaps that are still present. I think the biggest thing is social emotional learning and executive functioning skills. So you're looking at eighth graders who are acting like sixth graders, sixth graders who are acting like fourth graders. And not only is it the way they interact with their peers and their teachers, it's also simple things like being able to meet deadlines, to organize information, to make a plan for their own learning independently. Those skills are just vanished into thin air. So teachers are spending more time on teaching students how to be students and less time teaching content which is causing additional gaps <laughs> that yeah. is kind of like a snowball effect. That's interesting. I love that answer because I feel like a lot of people will divert to content. They don't. They're not meeting content content. But if they have lost their skills to retain content and just, like you said, be a student, be an active learner, um, be a friend at the age that they're at, it's, it's hard. And how, how do we fix it, Susanna? So, please, I, please tell us. Yeah. <laughs> what's the magic potion? I, I think there are a lot of schools and districts in search of like um, a silver bullet or a magic potion. I think a lot of it just takes time. Um, definitely continuing with in-person schooling and giving teachers the flexibility to actually focus on those skills because one of the biggest pieces of feedback I've gotten from teachers that I've worked with is that it's like we have pretended the pandemic hasn't happened. So all of our standards, all of our, you know, our, our pushes through curriculum have remained the same without taking any of this into account. And it's making things so much worse. So giving kids the chance to catch up on some of those skills and even having, you know, classes that basically focus on study skills and how to organize a binder. Those things are little, but the problem is, is that when you struggle with those skills every day, that's five to ten minutes of each class period that you're focused on those organization skills that you're not focused on content, and that adds up. Yeah, I also think online learning might have wiped a lot of, or wiped back to apathy. What am I trying to say? Wiped motivation, I mm. presume? Because yes. when you could just click through and you were done, it's like, then why do I want to print it out and put it in a binder? Why? I would always get the why, like, I would get grunts when I started doing labs again, and then it was fine, but they just would rather click through and be done. It's not, there's no motivation to do something fun. That's right. I have a, a uncle who teaches high school, and um, he was doing finals, and he's like, you have to watch this video, and then you have to write an mm -hmm. essay on it. And, you know, some of the kids didn't do the essay or whatever, and then they said, well, can't we just get credit for watching the video? Because that's what they did online. Yeah. Like, you, they, they would get credit um, and grades for clicking. And uh, now we're expecting them to process and create meet deadlines and create original thought. And, and they're like, yeah, I didn't sign <laughs> well, up for that. Well, I students. I'm like, do you want to go outside and do this? Or do you want to stay inside and write? They're like, we'd stay inside. And it wasn't the writing they enjoyed. They just didn't. I don't know. I, I feel bad because I see teachers online getting frustrated because they'll be so excited and have this huge lesson engaging plan stations. And the kids will come in and be like, okay. Because it's just not. And also, how do you beat online interactive labs? I mean, they're not 
at the edge of their seats doing the lab online, but it's just so much more the graphics, it's engaging, even sensory, I wonder if there's a long-term study on what lights their brain up. That's right. And they didn't have to navigate like social cues and friends and stuff like that either. They could just yeah, do they it. hate groups. But I feel like when I was younger, we didn't love, love group work. But That's now true. they really don't. They're like, Miss, I, why can't we just do it online? Or can we just do it by ourselves? Like, Maybe this is where we're headed. Yeah, but it's also life and building. And you're not going to, you don't want to seclude from everyone for a while. Sorry, Susanna. Did you have something to interject? <laughs> No, I I absolutely agree. I think online learning made it very difficult for kids, and a lot of them have learned to basically uh, circumvent all of the online programs. Mm. They've learned how to turn in blank Google Docs and say, oh, well, I had it there, and now it's just gone. I don't know where it went. Um, so the, vir- the virtual my dog ate my homework. Yes. Oh, I've gotten that. <laughs> like accidentally, it disappeared. I'm like, let's check the history. Let's see how much you've typed, because I can see if you deleted it. Um, interesting. So well, cool. We are going to move on so to our next topic. Go ahead, Susanna. Oh, um, so I was just going to uh, talk a little bit more about what parents can do at home over the summer to Actually, help perfect. with that learning loss. Does it involve the library and the warrior series? <laughs> you know what? We're stealing all the books the to read one. Didn't steal yes. our So if you live in Harris County, um, oh. there is the Harris County Summer Reading Challenge. Your child can earn um, all sorts of fun prizes. They can earn um, free books. And so that also works for the Houston Public Library. There is an app that you can download on your phone. It's called Beanstack. And oh. it allows you to track the titles that your child has read. So reading at home is huge over the summer reading a physical book when you can like pick up and turn the pages and then um, the other piece that I don't think a lot of parents are aware of as something they can focus on for the summer is really thinking about writing about reading so having kids write a response to what they read what characters they like what um, if they were in the story how would they write it differently and then also typing, because there's so many um, on STAR, grades three through eight, third graders, eight-year-olds typing essays yeah. this year. So if they don't know how to type, mm-hmm. that could be definitely problematic. But those are a few things that parents can do at home this year. Yeah, I'm almost picturing a book club. <laughs> like the What is it yeah. called? A room mom in the making. <laughs> Collecting <laughs> your kids and having them all read books together. I don't know if that will go over. But thank you, Susanna, so much for sharing that Harris County-specific piece of information. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas, the prairie sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas. We are to our last but not least guest. Is it Rachna Care? Rachna. Rachna. Mm-hmm. Rachna is the executive director of Daya. 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 Perfect. And today we're talking about empowering South Asian survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Rachna, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for calling in. We are looking forward to hearing about your organization and the work that you do and kind of getting deeper into a couple of the topics as time can permit. But if you could start by just giving an overview of Daya. Yeah, absolutely. So Daya has been around since 1996. It was founded by a group of South Asian women who really wanted to find a way to give back to their communities. So they had volunteered on a helpline, and they realized that mainstream agencies weren't able to meet some of the cultural barriers that South Asian immigrant survivors and really other immigrant survivors were facing in the community. And that's how Daya came to be. And so from there, we launched our helpline, and what started as a volunteer-run organization has now grown into an agency we do crisis intervention, we do counseling, mental health support, legal assistance, housing, and really everything in between, holistic case management. Um, And really, we do that with a cultural lens. So we do it in multiple South Asian languages, 
and always considering the role culture plays. Can you talk more about that? Because language, I think, is like the first thing that we think of when we're trying to be sensitive to new populations and their unique um, controls. But can you talk about uh, what might be specific in the South Asian population for this issue? Yeah, absolutely. So truly, um, language is the first thing that comes to mind, right? Mm -hmm. And I find that there are many agencies that can offer interpretation or translation. So we're thinking a little bit deeper than that. We're thinking about the way that perhaps immigration status impacts someone's abuse. So for example, when you have somebody that is where their immigration status is dependent on that of their spouse, and that spouse is abusing them, um, part of that abuse includes threats of deportation and separation from their children who are U.S. born. So that's a big factor. Other factors, the major one is the cultural stigma. So there is an intense cultural stigma against speaking up about domestic violence, and that's across cultures. But the way that it shows up in the South Asian community is that it really is pervasive across generations and across multiple layers of family members. So it does not just impact, like, if if I leave my spouse, that may impact my sister's ability to get married. That may impact the way that um, my parents can engage in their social communities. Um, And really, there is uh, such a a value of collectivism in the South Asian community. You know, we are really taught to think first about family and community. And while there's many healing um, prospects to that, one of the things it also does is it can leave people choosing um, family reputation over their own safety. Um, Mm -hmm. So really immigration status, language, that social stigma, and then there's also a mistrust in mainstream agencies. There was a study in 2019 that came out that showed that most immigrant survivors are not comfortable with mainstream agencies because there's little things like dietary restrictions and, and truly just going to a place where somebody knows and understands and lives your culture so that you don't have to explain all those little nuances to them. Yeah, this question is almost twofold of um, one on a legislative level and then one just as a person to person in breaking this, we hear break this cycle. So I saw on your Instagram, you just had a legislative win. So speaking on that and what we can advocate for, but then also how we can break it in our own generations, this or loop of domestic violence. So I'll say what is um, what is really critical is that we think about things in multiple different ways, right? Um, You have to think about the policy, the advocacy, encouraging our leaders to take action to hold abusers accountable. But the other thing that we have to do is really starting within, within our families, right? So I'll start with the second part of the question first. And I think the most important way that we can break the cycle, and I'm telling you, this is like the, the secret sauce. This is the thing that I'm so confident is going to work, is starting conversations with about healthy relationships with really everyone in our, in our lives, right? So whether it's your children, whether it's your siblings, your parents, your friends, your partner, centering the conversation around healthy relationships, around boundaries, reminding people that you are a safe space, that you're somebody that they can talk to. The biggest connecting factor between all survivors is that they are worried about what people are going to say. So the more we can start to really out loud talk about these taboo topics, talk about like the red flags and, and you know, things that, things that are often romanticized, like somebody calling you over and over again, like, Instead of saying, oh, that's so sweet that that person has so much interest in you, you know, really having a... Can you hear us? Oh, no. We that, all was a, that was such a good story. Rachna, are you there? She might call back. That reminded me of the boys are mean to you because they like you narrative. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're starting to rewrite, rewrite that. But that's interesting hearing um, almost like romanticizing I don't want to say obsession, but romanticizing kind of persistence. I think she's Sorry back. About that. You are fine. We were just saying how it connects to the boys are boys like you when they're mean to you narrative. Yes, absolutely. Like 
teaching people, you know, we, we have a lot of media coming our way. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of that media is rooted in ideas that are patriarchal, that are unhealthy, that are romanticizing the right thing. I think that's okay. You know, media can be media. But at the same time, like, what are we doing in our personal relationships? So I think it's really important to have transparent and close relationships with people, whether that is your family members or whether that is um, your friends. You know, another really fantastic protective factor for domestic violence is friendships, is making your life one where it is not all eggs in one basket, you know, where you're spreading your love around to, to different people. That's how you build a safety net and really how you build a fuller life. Yeah, and we are running low on time, but I do not want to end without asking if someone or someone someone knows needs help, what can they do? I think the very best thing that you can do if you have a friend that needs help is to find a time to have a private conversation with them. And in that conversation, the first thing you want to say is, I care about you, and I'm saying this from a place of care. I'm worried about this behavior that I'm seeing from your partner, your boyfriend, your spouse, your wife, whoever it is, and give some tangible examples to them. And then let them know, listen, if there's something going on, I just want to be here to help you find some help and know that there are multiple agencies across the city, including Daya, that help any survivor of domestic abuse, sexual assault, or family violence. So know that the help is out there. But as a helper, you want to recognize the signs if you see things that are controlling. Um, you want to respond with empathy and making sure you hold on to confidentiality. You don't go, you know, that you don't share that information with others. And then that you refer to other professionals that can help, whether it's a counselor, whether it's a nonprofit organization, or whether it's, you know, a faith leader, a trusted adult for kids. You know, they're finding the other helpers out there because it is, it is very hard to break the cycle of domestic violence. And the, the best thing that I can recommend is that you do so not on your own, but with, with trusted people in your life. And so if you're a person that needs help, knowing that abuse is not always physical, it is psychological, emotional, verbal, um, there, there's immigration status, there's finances, and know that all of that is valid. And on no level does anyone ever deserve to be harmed, especially by somebody that they love. And so that help is out there. I'll share our helpline number, which is 713-981-7645. Perfect. Thank you so much. We are running low on time, but thank you for what you and Daya are doing organizationally and just the impact you're having on our community. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to remind everyone that all of our services are completely free, completely confidential, and open to anyone. Thank you. Thank you for that work and for sharing that information. Thank you. With that, we have come to the end of Gretchen's first show, the ominous giver that we always have donate during our shows at Shona. You too can be the host for the day. You donate in our name to KPFT. And now I'm donating my time. (laughs) Yeah. Now we've got you in here. But perfect. How did you enjoy your first show? I had a great time. Can I come back? Yeah, you are welcome back, 100%. I look forward, I look forward to that. <laughs> and so are all of our listeners, because we do this every Wednesday from 12 to 1 for children. For children. For children. <laughs> welcome to the land of fame, XX. Am I going to fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time. Look to my right and I see the Hollywood sign. This is all so crazy. Everybody seems so famous My tummy's turning and I'm feeling kind of homesick Too much pressure and I'm nervous That's when the taxi man turned on the radio And a Jay-Z song was on And a Jay-Z song was on And a Jay-Z song was on This is Hank for the chat producer So much Houston's Community Station When you're high, you feel different You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different, and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. 
Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Not completing high school is more of a social thing than it was an 